Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I'm Cass Clark, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. And we have a special guest this week, Donna. Would you love to introduce yourself and tell our fans about you? Sure. My name is Donna Leahy. I am one of the co-hosts of a different horror podcast called Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. I'm also a a writer and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm just delighted to be here with my good friend Ryan and my new friend Cass. We're all talking about non-shark animal attacks for a couple of reasons. One, I'm petrified of anything shark related. So (laughs) it's mostly to save my sanity. And also because it's not very cool that there's a lot of horror movies out there. They're into anti-shark things when sharks are very much endangered species in the world. So let's protect them and keep them off my screens, please. (laughs) Donna, can I ask you an intro question? Yeah. Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, the the concept was originally two horror fans and two non-horror fans fans being introduced i know you've done like a hundred plus episodes now so everyone's a horror expert but at the beginning were you one of the the fans or one of the inductees i was one of the inductees at the beginning oh really yeah though I, i wouldn't say i was a horror virgin but the two horror experts were definitely experts compared to me. Very cool. All right. So getting into the history of animal attacks. Normally I go back and try to figure out like, hey, where was the first cursed object? When was the first haunted house? Animal attacks going to be a little different because basically if there was humans, there was animals eating them. Um, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. I am going to go into a little bit of uh, the craziest animal attacks. I'm getting a lot of this from uh, Gordon Grice's excellent book called The Book of Deadly Animals. It has a great summation of animal attacks across species, mostly set in modern times, kind of what's still happening now. Um, but he also drops some historical knowledge like the, uh, the Beast of Jevedon in France from 1764 to 1767 maybe a wolf, maybe a serial killer, um, responsible for 600 attacks and 500 deaths. Then there was the the Champawat tiger that ate 436 people in Nepal and India over the course of about 10 years. It was killed in 1907. I just read a book about it called No Beast So Fierce by Dane Hucklebridge, which is fascinating. Tigers fascinate me to the point where like, if I'm reading a book about tigers, Betsy is actively mad at me. <laughs> She's just like, I don't want to hear any more about tigers, Ryan. Stop talking about tigers. But I love them. Then there's also uh, the Savo man eaters. They ate about 28 railroad workers in a 10 month period, which is fascinating because lions eat people as a supplement. I think a lot of people think of like animals going starving and then eating people. Sometimes that is the case, but lions, they just eat people too. I think the other fascinating about those stories was the, the, the lions were smart enough to figure out that people would go away to pee in the same spots. They stalked where people peed and then attacked from ambush, um, which is just absolutely nuts. And leopards have eaten a ton of people. Like if you look up a list of the leopards that have eaten the most people, there's a bunch in the hundreds. Uh, The guy who killed the Champawat tiger, Jim Corbett, said that tigers you can get because they're very territorial. Leopards are more random and harder to kill. But the leopard of Pinar ate 400 people. Nile crocodiles regularly eat hundreds of people a year. 
including uh, a rumored crocodile uh, named Gustave that has eaten upward of 300 people, as rumored, and may still be alive. They think they killed him in 2018. There have been other false reports that they finally got Gustave. He's recognizable because of some scars from being shot. And of course, there's the Battle of Ramri Island uh, in World War II. The Japanese army tried to flee across a swampy island, and many soldiers were eaten by crocodiles, like too many of them to know how. Ending our real-life animal attacks, 1961 in Capitola, California, birds infected with toxic algae did some dive bombing, which inspired our, our first breakout film for today, The Birds. Before I get into the movies, I should say we are going to leave off, for the most part, sharks. I couldn't not put on Jaws because it's too good. And we're going to leave off, for the most part, mutant animals. If you add mutant animals, you have Godzilla, you have Alien, you have all this stuff and fictional animals, and it would be a two hour long history. So 1925, The Lost World. 1940, The Devil Bat with Bela Lugosi. 1954, Them, Gigantic Irradiated Ants. The Naked Jungle in 1954, Charleston Heston versus Regular Ants. 1955, we have The Bride of the Monster, in which it's uh, Ed Wood's largest budget film ever. And in it, Bela Lugosi sticks an octopus on hunters seeking shelter. 59, you have Attack of the Giant Leeches. I don't think you need to say much more about that one. 1963, we have our first breakout movie, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Um, we'll swing back around and talk about that in a couple of minutes. 1963 also had Black Zoo featuring lions and tigers on the loose. Um, 1966, we had the Deadly Bees predating murder hornets by 50 years. 1971, there was Willard. 1973, Pigs, a trauma flick about, you can guess which animal. Um, 1975, Jaws, the only shark movie on the list. It also inspired most of the movies that are to come next. 1976, Squirm was about worms. 1976, also uh, Dogs, about attack of dogs. Grizzly also came out in 1976. Rattlers came out in 1976 as well. Then we get to 77, we have Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner. Orca, Tentacles was 78, you got the first Piranha movie which had a sequel in 82, a remake in 2010, and a sequel to the remake in 12. The Swarm, which is a B-movie featuring Michael Caine, not to be confused with our other 1978 B-movie, The Bees, which is a Mexican flick. 1979, you had Nightwing, which is a bat-themed Jaws ripoff. 1979, you also had Prophecy about a mutant bear. 1980, you had Alligator, which is also directed by Louis Teague, who directed Cujo, our second breakout movie. It had a sequel in 91. 82, Blood Beach, where giant worms attacked Santa Monica, featuring John Saxon from uh, The Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy's mm -hmm. dad. 1982, there's an adaptation of James Herbert's 1974 novel, The Rats, which is infamous. 1982 had another Stephen King, Creep Show, which had one good animal attack segment with the cockroaches, which still freaks me out to this day. 1984, Razorback, which is about a boar in Australia. A lot of the killer movies from there on are from Australia. And it just makes me think of that meme about how everything in Australia will kill you. Um, 1986, there's the Australian crocodile flick, Dark Age. 1987, Beaks the Movie. It is an unofficial Mexican sequel to The Birds. 1988, Slugs, by the same guy who directed Pieces, Juan Piquer Simone. 1988, George A. Romero's only big studio picture, Monkey Shines, which is a lot of fun if you haven't seen it. 1989, Killer Crocodile, which is an Italian movie. 1990, Arachnophobia, which my understanding is very popular, but I've never seen it. Have you guys seen it? I haven't. Apparently, I need. I now need to. Donna's shaking her head like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty scary. Cool. It was pretty Good. silly also, but 
pretty scary. Excellent. Also in 1990, we have Graveyard Shift, more Stephen King, lots of rats. 93, we have Jurassic Park, which is an absolute classic, and it has sequels in uh, 97, 2001, 2015, 2018, and more on the way. I think Donna mentioned under her breath, like Andrew, like sequels. And I feel <laughs> the same way about the Jurassic Park sequels. So, <laughs> um, not a fan. 1994, The Birds 2, Land's End, a straight to TV sequel to Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. 1995, Congo, more Michael Crichton, killer apes in this one. 1996, The Ghost in the Darkness, a film about the man eaters of Savo that I mentioned earlier. 1997, Anaconda with Ice Cube and J Lo got sequels. <laughs> in 2004, 2008, 2009. In 1999, we had Lake Placid, Rest in Peace Betty White, who's phenomenal in it, which also got sequels in 2007, 2010, 2012. There's a lot of animal attack movies. 2002, we had Eight-Legged Freaks. 2006, The Breed, about dogs on a private island. 2006 also, we had Snakes on a Plane, which gifted us with one of the best lines of all time. 2007, we had Maneater with Gary Busey and a tiger. 2007, Prey, about lions in Africa. There's a bunch of 2007. Uh, Black Water, about crocodiles in Australia. And also Primeval, a movie about Gustav, the Nile crocodile I mentioned earlier. 2010, we had Frozen, not with Anna and Elsa, the, the one with the chairlift and the wolves. 2010, we also had Burning Bright, which is about tiger attacks. 2010, we had The Reef, more Australian crocodiles. 2010, we also had Birdemic, Shock and Terror. 2014, we had uh, White God, a Hungarian dog revolution. 2015, we had The Pack, about dogs in Australia. 2017, Boar, about guess what animal in Australia. 2018, we had The Pool, uh, Thailand, a man is stuck in a pool with a crocodile. In 2019, we have The Crows Have Eyes 3, starring Moira Rose. Uh, wow. Congratulations, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> what it a was, marathon that was. <laughs> it was a lot narrowed it down. But that's why we couldn't like include Alien or Planet of the Apes. I'm sure there's like a bazillion more, but I think this was an excellent list. And exactly. as always, if there's other movies we should see, let us know. But these were yes. great recommendations. I just added like 10 to my list. <laughs> <laughs> I think we as human beings are not confident in our position as the apex predator. Yeah, because we depend on things like being smarter than our prey and using tools. And if you catch us alone and without our tools, we're just soft pink flesh. And <laughs> Body bags. <laughs> we're, we're just you know, meat. And I think that's kind of why animal attacks are such a ripe subject for horror. Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan. Before we go into the like breakout first feature film, which will be 1963's The Birds, do you agree with what Donna said? Or do you have any other thoughts about why you think there's so much in this genre and why we're so attracted to animal attacks and horror. So I want to point out Donna is a doctor of veterinary medicine. I will say um, in Gordon Grice's book, the one I mentioned at the beginning, the, the book of deadly animals, he ends with this argument that I found very compelling. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, Donna, because obviously you know a ton more about animals than I do. He argues that humans, we view ourselves as apex predators, but aren't really because there's a lot of stuff that eats us there's so many of us like they don't eat a lot of us in terms of like population size but like an individual human versus an individual tiger 
we are certainly not the apex predator. Now, see, that's a that's an interesting comparison because you know you and I had a conversation about coyotes just the other day, and yes. um, individual coyote is a big giant coward, but coyotes don't operate as individuals. Coyotes operate as packs. And coyotes as packs are very dangerous. And humans, if you go back a few hundred years when we didn't have, you know, cars and shotguns, humans also operated as packs. That's how humans hunt. And language is a huge part of how humans operate. So we've got these great big brains. We use tools and we communicate and we operate as packs. And using those tools, we absolutely 100% are apex predators. Okay. But you're right. As an individual, one human against one tiger, hell no. We are not competitive at all. But a pack of humans against a tiger, oh, we'll kick its ass. No question. We might lose a couple in the course of the fight, but we'll win. We'll we'll beat a, an elephant. We'll beat a tiger. We'll beat a lion. That's what makes us the apex predator. I wonder if that's why there's so many animal attack movies. It always comes down to like man versus shark or man versus snake or man versus like big spider. I guess like if it wasn't, it would be a lot less interesting of a movie. Like even Jaws, the way it's written. Ugh, I don't want to talk about Jaws, but <laughs> it always comes down between Martin and Jaws. Like at the end of the day, like everyone else kind of gets picked off because the shark is smart enough to like isolate the individual and then becomes like a one-on-one story. But if Jaws never isolated the other people from the pack, it would be a very short film where Jaws just gets shot by like six people. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Donna just tapped into something. I'm like, oh, this makes sense why movies always do that because it wouldn't, they would not stand a chance. This isn't usual, is it? We've been out back looking at the chickens. Something seems to be wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with those chickens, Mitch. Okay, well, the first one we're talking about is 1963's The Birds, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and the screenplay is written by crime writer Evan Hunter. The film is loosely based on a book by Daphne du Maurier, uh, which is the third story that Hitchcock adapted after he bought the rights to a bunch of her work in the 50s. And it's also based on what Ryan mentioned earlier, a 1961 event where a bunch of seagulls and other uh, birds near beach areas ingested some toxic algae, and it just caused them to attack individuals, likely because they were in a lot of pain and confusion. And from there, Hitchcock kind of just fictionalized this whole film. They use a mixture of real birds and mechanical birds. So there was like 200 something mechanical birds and then thousands of actual birds. And I'm sure you're gonna have a lot of feelings about this. The film itself was at the time approved by the ASPCA on the condition that they build an, an avian hospital on set, which I think is a very interesting clause because in order to be like, we approve this movie, if there's a bird hospital on set, you have to also be like, okay, so you're admitting that birds are getting harmed in this film while like being thrown <laughs> out at people. Uh, One of the biggest complaints now, like in retrospect of looking at how Hitchcock directed this film, even though there was a, a trained animal hander by the name of Ray Berwick on set, Hitchcock decided with Tippi Hedren to really amp up that iconic phone booth scene instead of using the mechanical birds to attack her, which was always the plan, very last minute, he decided to send actual birds at her. So in that scene where we're seeing the birds pecking at Tippi's character, Melanie, those are actual birds attacking her. And unfortunately, one of the birds actually like, tore a hole in her lower eyelid. So in <sighs> retrospect, it's really gnarly. It's really gnarly. In retrospect, like at the time in 1963, when they were doing like press and when the film was coming out, especially because it had this big, you know, important name at the time, 
Tippy didn't speak too much about it, but within the past three decades plus, there's been a lot that's come out about not only the mistreatment of the birds and her physically as an actor on set, but also some really icky things about Hitchcock as a director with her. I, I will link to it in the show notes. What's an interesting th- thing that she's mentioned, last minute switch of the script just so happened to come after Alfred Hitchcock tried to come on to her and she rebuffed him, which is absurd. And I could have not mention before we go into the actual film summary and questions around the film. I would love to hear Donna's thoughts about the idea of using and training birds to attack, even in a fictional film. How ethical even is that? That's a tough question because, yeah. you know, we'll look at it. And of course, we're going to talk more about this when we talk about Cujo a little later. But when you talk about say dogs, dogs will attack playfully and that's something it's very easy to teach a dog to do so you can teach a dog to go through what looks like an attack when it has no intention of hurting you whatsoever now people who love birds will tell you that birds will play with you in the same way i don't dislike birds but i don't have a personal relationship with any bird so (laughs) i find it a little harder to wrap my brain around the idea that you can teach a bird to playfully attack. I have a lot of doubts about the possibility of being able to ethically attack with a bird. I'm having a hard time picturing a way that that could be done ethically. Even going back a few decades when standards were different and looking at it from what ethics were a few decades ago, I'm still like, I just don't see that. I don't know much about birds. I know a lot more about dogs because I've, I've had a bunch of dogs. And I was surprised like in the notes when I was reading about how they train the birds, they mentioned a lot about positive reinforcement. Can birds be trained through positive reinforcement? Yeah, birds are highly trainable. Most birds are highly intelligent. So yeah, they're very trainable. But when you've got a group and you're trying to teach them to attack i have my doubt i keep telling you this isn't a few birds these are gulls crows swifts. i have never known birds of different species to flock together the very concept is unimaginable why if that happened we wouldn't have a chance the birds uh the plot of it is actually pretty straightforward it all centers around this character melanie who is pursuing this lawyer named mitch and goes to meet him where he he lives with his mother and his little sister and within like a stone throw away of his ex-girlfriend who's also a school teacher (laughs) and while she is kind of developing this relationship with him it just happens that everywhere she goes birds sort of start attacking one of the things that Hitchcock was saying when he was making this film was he envisioned it as Melanie was this character who was this fly-by-night uh, LOL, pun intended, uh, kind of like playgirl play of a person who has to face reality. So that's one thing that he has said the film is supposedly about. And then I was also said, like, this film also stands in to be like a judgment day scenario. And he also is like, this is also a film about the complacency of man and don't fuck with nature. So those are a whole lot of things that Hitchcock is saying this film is or isn't. So before we get into a bit more, I would love to hear after watching it, how did you feel about the birds? Do you think Hitchcock succeeded in any of those like possible things that this film is about? (laughs) If it was supposed to be some kind of judgment on Melanie, Melanie needed to be a lot more bad. Yeah. The worst thing I saw Melanie do was be a little bit sketchy about looking up Mitch. That was the worst thing she did was 
kind of stalk Mitch a little bit. And after that, she wasn't always completely honest, but I didn't see her do anything bad. Yeah. And once and once things started going, she was really super nice. She was taking care of people. She was helping yeah. people. I feel like she had those moments where she's talking about like she went skinny dipping in a fountain in Rome. And like, one, I don't give a shit. People do what they do. But two, she's saying like, I want to change my life from that. I'm trying to, in her view, she was improving and getting better. And so like, I'm with that person. Like I've done stupid shit. I still do stupid shit sometimes. I'm sure I will until I die. Um, I'm trying not to anymore. I'm trying to be better. I really relate to characters who are trying to be better at stuff. So I find her very compelling as a character. Mm. If the movie's punishing her as she's trying to be better, the movie can fuck off, you know? Yeah, I I feel like that's the thing that sat with me the most like what you and Donna were talking about because I I tried to watch it first and not look up anything or my biggest thing was why wasn't Mitch ever attacked he comes in (laughs) he just comes into this movie in this very like negging way of hey you I looked you up and like I don't like the way you're doing your things and it's like who are you sir what (laughs) and then he's the most judgmental close-minded character And it's very unclear what this whole bull teacher relationship in the background is happening. That seems weird to me too, where it's like, he's okay with his ex clearly still in love with him being around and taking care of his family when he's not there. That seems like shitting another way that Hitchcock was not even thinking about because of probably the closed-minded misogyny of the time period. But yeah, I just, I couldn't get why if this film is supposed to be a larger statement about mankind or humanity, I don't think it does that because if that was true, why doesn't Mitch get fucked up? The majority of the time, we really only close up on women dying and getting attacked by these birds. Yeah, Mitch is a major dick and every conversation they have, like, because Betsy and I watched it yesterday together and I was like, he's such a dick. He's cross-examining her all the time. Betsy's like, no, that's flirting. It's like, I don't think that's flirting. Please don't tell me I flirt like that. I hope I don't. It is not flirting that would work with me. I'll just say that. Yeah. I think in the context of the time, it's meant to come across as like playfully challenging each other. But I feel like it doesn't succeed in that. We see Melanie having her very honest, vulnerable moment later on in the film with Mitch when we finally talk about the jumping in the fountain in Rome. And Ken finds that her mother ditched her when she was like 11 years old and that she's basically just been raising herself and wanted to have just one day where she kind of let loose a bit. It just seems like he's pushing at her, but we're, we're never getting any pushback to like, what is Mitch's deal? <laughs> I watched the the DVD and I watched one of the, the featurettes. It's called Alfred Hitchcock's Monster Movie. And it, one of the talking heads argued that Mitch's mother not letting her son date young women is unnatural. It also like really calls back to Psycho. Yeah. Um, I think you see it in a lot of Hitchcock. I had a student write a paper on this. I used to teach at a community college and I have all my students write a paper on like problematic media. They could pick whatever they wanted. Never watch it, watch it, do whatever you want with it. What to do with it though? Like how do we engage with something like, cause we know Tiffy Hedren got abused on the set of the birds mm-hmm. and it's bad. And like, why didn't you just let her act? She's a very good actress. As you can see in the scenes when birds were not being thrown at her. Mm. Yeah, but Hitchcock never does love. Or if he does love, it's just like a very unhealthy, unnatural, even in like Rear Window. Ooh. The, the girlfriend is trying to get him to, to retire. And basically in Hitchcock's movies, there's this like weird dynamic where, where love is the unnatural thing. And so I don't even think it's the mother stopping her son from dating. I think for Hitchcock, it's love is unnatural. The birds are attacking because nature is out of balance because these two young people like each other and you know in psycho the romantic relationship was an affair Mm. yeah it was an illicit 
relationship. One thing I wanted to ask Donna about before the birds are attacking, there's a part in the beginning of the film where they warn other people about molting season for birds and how that's mm-hmm. a very dangerous time. And I don't know anything about molting. So I was really curious how much more prickly or dangerous are birds when they are like going through shedding their feathers and, and regrowing? Like, are they that vulnerable and like agitated or just like, oh, I don't care? No, they're shedding their feathers and growing in new feathers. And they're, they might be a little itchy. Mm-hmm. Of course, I may be thinking about this more as a medical situation when they're growing in new feathers you have what's called a blood feather where a nail that you can quick you know that you can you can break and it'll bleed Mm. and so they might be prickly and itchy but it's not like you know they're in any more particular danger of just dropping dead because you look at them harshly or something they're just they're shedding their old feathers and growing in new feathers and that's it so he was just bullshitting her and she was bullshitting him back are birds more susceptible to attacking in packs it's going to depend more on the species than um on anything else like some birds that travel in groups then absolutely uh and crows are one of the birds that will do that they'll be like we don't like that hawk let's get him and they'll (laughs) or people i have heard of crows that will be like i don't like that person in particular but then other birds will they'll they'll be individual about it one of my favorite things that birds will do and i don't know if this is something that is general knowledge or not but there's some species of birds like if you get too close to their nest whichever bird it is that is nurturing that nest will suddenly flutter down to the ground and pretend like oh god my wing is broken and start fluttering around Like, oh God, I'm in distress. Oh no. Moving away from the nest to draw the predator away from the nest. Making a big deal about, oh, I'm so injured. I'm so vulnerable. I'm easy prey. Until they're far enough away from the nest and they're like, ha ha, fuck you. (laughs) And that is one of my favorite bird tricks. And not all of them will do that, but some of them will do. Birds are awesome. To kind of go off on a tangent, one of the things that's most interesting to me about this, there's just two things that was a really interesting choice to me. And one of them was that none of the birds that they used in this movie are particularly predatory birds. Seagulls and sparrows and crows and blackbirds these are not birds that are typically known for attacking anything you know like seagulls attack fish but they're not hunting birds there's no hawks there's no eagles there's no owls in this movie and it's an interesting choice to me because none of these birds are birds that you would expect to be attacking people that's so funny in the interview i found from hitchcock was just like seagulls are scavenger birds and they're vicious by nature so we had to be very careful on the set i'm like seagulls like the seagulls that are eating my french fries are the vicious birds in the animal kingdom He had to be working there, though. He had to be trying to convince you that this film was scary. Yeah. And that, like, it's really... Not only is it incompetent, it's, like, unfair to the species. Like, an owl movie would have been way, like, more scarier. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Can I tell you, though, kind of a funny and a little bit uncomfortable story? Yeah. Please do. I was an undergrad, and I was working as a kennel tech for a veterinarian in Norman, Oklahoma. And she treated a lot of wildlife. And we had this crow. It was a pretty big crow. And when I had gone in to take care of it, it had gotten out of its cage and it had scurried underneath this bank of cages. And this this particular room was right by the lobby. Okay, so there was a lot of people just like on the other side of the wall. And this matters 
because when I reached underneath the bank of kennels to try and grab this bird, it bit me right in the webbing between my thumb and my forefinger. And I mean, it bit hard. And then I yelled at the top of my lungs, oh, let go of me, you big black bastard. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no. It's like an episode of The Office. <laughs> which got some attention from the room full of people on the other side of the wall. But the reason I mentioned this is this crow who thought he was fighting for his life because of course he did when, when he bit me. Now it hurt really bad. It was very painful, but he didn't even really leave a bruise when he bit me. Um, and I did manage to catch him and get him back in his cage and everything was fine after that. So this crow caused me pain, but he did not cause me injury. Mm. that's the reason i mentioned this story also the embarrassment that i caused everybody did you you explain what happened to the people in the waiting room i did not did you let it slide um (laughs) i explained it to somebody else and i assume maybe they went hopefully yeah and explained to the people in the lobby that it was a crow because I was horrified. My two closing thoughts around the birds is one, I was delighted to see a baby Veronica Cartwright as Kathy. Uh, She was so good and awesome. Just like one day you're going to be an invasion of the body snatchers and you're going to be an alien and you're going to be everyone's favorite scream queen. (laughs) I have that. And I guess my, my last closing thought is just about how I think sometimes movies have this really funny way of unintentionally showing where society is at the time but not credited to the director. So like, I think when I was thinking about like what the hell was happening in 1963, like that's the same year that JFK was assassinated, that MLK delivered his I have a dream speech, Beatlemania was starting, people were shedding off the like nuclear family values of the fifties and women were trying to get reproductive rights and people were trying to rethink how to live, how to love and just break free of a lot of post-World War II, like fear and like buckle down Tupperware kind of life. (laughs) Um, So I think, right? Like it's a time where I know there's always unrest, but it's a time specifically where so much was like trying to change before like hippiedom broke off and free love started and, and everything else. Like Vietnam was just starting to brew. Like it was just like this weird time. So I feel like for me, at least when I watched it, I, I thought the film kind of encapsulated that fear of change. I don't think Hitchcock intended to embody that, but I think maybe his own subconscious fears were kind of sort of coming through. Did anyone yeah. else feel that way? <laughs> no, but it's a really good point because in 1963, big changes hadn't happened but yeah. big changes were coming. Yeah. And I bet there was a lot of insecurities for a lot of people. I think we're in real trouble. Huh? I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it. To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird war. The bird attack. Play, call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it. I had uh, two bird thoughts and a question for you both about the birds. Bird thought one. I think that Hitchcock even if he's a shitty person, is a master of building tension. And I just want to point out the scene where Melanie is sitting in front of the school with the jungle gym behind her. And we look and there's one bird and we look away, we look back and there's three birds and they kind of just keep multiplying. I think that scene is everything I still watch some of his movies for. It's so good. Yes. Two, I think Stephen King's The Mist is a remake of The Birds, basically. (laughs) Uh, The scene in the diner, especially, where everything breaks down, that felt a ton like The Mist to me. 
Do y'all feel like the mist took a lot from the birds or am I making I wouldn't up? I wouldn't have said so, but now that you say that, I like I can see kind of where you're coming from. The slow progressive increase of the problem and the difficulty of getting people by the way if i can just go off on a tangent every time i see a character like that ornithologist in a movie like this (laughs) i'm i'm her i will be her okay (laughs) i will be the one going what are you talking about this is impossible that can't be happening i don't know if i've ever seen the nest actually oh so i'm gonna trust both (laughs) (laughs) ending is a gut punch so my question the ending is ambiguous do y'all read it as they're gonna drive to the roadblock get through drive to san francisco and be fine or are they fucking dead and we're just watching them drive off to their death i think it all depends on whether you believe the problem is centered on melanie or not if the problem is centered on melanie they're dead personally i do not believe the problem is centered on melanie yeah there's also the option the problem is centered on the lovebirds if the problem is centered on the lovebirds they're dead i don't believe that either i think they're going to be fine when they get to san francisco and they really should just nuke bodega bay (laughs) i I think the lovebirds attracted the first attack through the chimney and i think they'll attract another attack in the car. Mm. Cass, what's your reading? I feel like I'm a bit divided because I, th- I think Donna made a great point of saying it, d- it depends what you think the cause is. And if you don't think the lovebird, I, th- I feel like if you don't think the lovebirds or Melanie is the cause and you kind of just fall into believing this is all just a really tragic coincidence that people are trying to put meaning to and maybe there just isn't, then I think they're fine. But I do think that if it's connected to this relationship that's budding and or Melanie they're probably doomed but I think the way it's shot it's leaving us to be more hopeful than not there's a moment where Melanie and the mother embrace and the mother gives her this like soothing sort of approval look so I think that kind of makes me think that whatever was going on between them and her feelings around her son's new relationship I feel like that has calmed and they're now leaving all together as this like new family unit. So I think Hitchcock meant it to be hopeful and like the family was rebuilt and now this is this new family. But I think that if that's the message that's really problematic, <laughs> maybe they should just all die. <laughs> One other question, Cass. When you said they had mechanical birds they used on set, did yeah. the mechanical birds actually fly or they just like throw them? Mechanical birds were flying uh, and were rigged up to like levers and pulleys and things so mm-hmm. yes and they were also supposed to be thrown damn this car take it out the joe cameras it's only seven miles all right cool you all ready to get into cujo yes please all right, a brief summary of cujo 1983 classic based on stephen king's 1981 novel which famously he said he doesn't remember writing at all because he was on so much cocaine and alcohol at that time um, it's directed by Louis Teague, who, as I mentioned in the history, also worked with King on Cat's Eyes, and he directed Alligator as well, another animal attack movie, with a script by Don Carlos Dunaway and Barbara Turner. It's a deceptively simple story. Donna Trenton, played by Dee Wallace, and her son Tad take Donna's car to the mechanic, and through a series of coincidences, they're stranded with a rabid St. Bernard named Cujo, who was played by five different dogs. So how did y'all like the movie? I really enjoy this movie. 
for a lot of different reasons. I've always found this on a level to be one of the scarier of King's movies because of all of them. This is the one that could actually happen. There's no clown from outer space. There's no um, psychic, psychic power eating vampires. There's no haunted hotel. There's a rabid dog and an empty house. And this is a thing that could happen. And uh, so on that level, it's very scary. And I find rabies to be a fascinating disease. So I really enjoy this movie. Yeah. I don't think I love the movie, but I think it's a really interesting character study. This is also a movie that is looking at domestication and nuclear families in a similar sort of light that's interesting to dive into a bit more personally i love dogs so much that this is a very hard movie for me to get through like it's just i'm just rooting for kudra the whole time but it is very intriguing i'll say so i think the other stephen king movie in my estimation that could happen is misery and i want to know which situation would you rather be stuck in what would you rather live kudra <laughs> or misery Cujo, just because it's shorter. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great answer. Uh, I would say misery because I know myself and I'm that person that like, if I was in a zombie apocalypse and a friend got bit, I'd be like, we can just bring them along. We don't have to put them out of their misery. Like I know. So I would not, I would probably not be able to kill the dog and I would get rabies and die. So (laughs) misery. Now, listen, if we're in a zombie apocalypse, (laughs) you better hide that bite because I will shoot you. I will (laughs) not hesitate. Oh, you're bit. You're done. It sounds like we have the three of us have to be in a zombie pod together and you two will even each other out when I get bit. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I will be merciless. What about you, Ryan? What would you be in if you had to pick? I was hoping no one would ask. (laughs) (laughs) I would go with Cujo for the same reason Donna said. Okay. So Donna, as a veterinarian, they get the rabies right. They got the rabies right up to a point. Rabies is so cool if it weren't horrible. Okay, so when you get bit by a rabid animal, you don't have rabies. You have the rabies virus in your system. You don't have rabies. Okay. You don't have rabies until the rabies virus makes it to your central nervous system. So the rabies virus is in, say, your hand. It's moving around. It it finds its way to a peripheral nerve. Now it starts moving up your peripheral nerve. It finally gets to your central nervous system. Now you have rabies. Now it starts moving up your central nervous system. It gets to your brain. Okay. Now you have contracted what's called rabies encephalitis. And this is going to be really uncomfortable because your brain is inflamed. Once it gets to your salivary glands, that's when you can transmit it. But to get to your salivary glands, it has to have gone all the way through your brain. And that's why they have that 10-day quarantine thing after an animal has bit somebody. Because if it's gone through your brain to get to your salivary glands, you're going to die 10 days later. Okay, so when they show Cujo getting bit... And then they show him kind of progressively getting more irritable and, you know, like he growls at people and he kind of goes and he hides and he doesn't like noise. That's all good. He's getting progressively sicker. Now, there's actually a couple of different forms of rabies. There's the furious form, which we see in most carnivores. And there's also called the dumb form, which we see in most food animals. Now, 
What we see with rabies is what's actually called a progressive paralysis, and this is where it fails. At the point that he's actually sick enough that he's able to pass it on, which he does in the book, Donna has to get rabies prophylactic treatment because she's actually been exposed to rabies. He should be getting progressively weaker because he's actually not mm. able to drink water at that point. One of the main reasons they used to call it hydrophobia is because you would see dogs outstanding in water barking at water because they couldn't drink it. Their, their, their throat didn't work. So he should have been getting progressive progressively weaker. Rabies is not a superpower. You haven't been bitten by a radioactive bat. So that's where it failed. Okay. He should have been dying over the course of the time that they were trapped in the car, but that would not have been a good movie yeah. watching Cujo slowly die over the course of several days. So I forgive them for that. <laughs> Cass, in your, your first comments, you brought up like the magical realist reading of the story. The Claire Donner at Den of Geek had a similar reading she also argued that Cujo is more a symbolic movie than a, a physical movie. And her argument is that Donna, the, the character, and her husband, Vic, have broken the bonds of civilization. Specifically, Donna has by having an affair. And that has invited the wild world, represented by Cujo, into their world. And I'm just curious how you all feel about that reading. Is Cujo a magical realist text? Um... I think it's more fun to think of it that way. And, and I do think like it is Stephen King and I don't think Stephen King works in a world without symbols. I just don't think so. I, he works really hard in the book and in the movie to like create the parallel between Donna's infidelity and the increasing like I guess, feral behavior of Cujo. So I like that reading, even though I think it's very problematic, especially when you look at how the film ends, you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> when I first watched it, I saw it as like, as Donna is kind of rebelling against this domesticated life, you see Cujo getting more and more powerful, but more terrifying. And then the film is showing Donna face that in herself and that's why there's just like battling with Cujo that being said what if you carry that to the end it's kind of uncomfortable because in the end it's just like she has to defeat her own wild nature is it kind of like if you if you keep on like playing it through it's like she has to yeah. defeat her own wild nature which is Cujo which is like the embodiment of like her like breaking free from like her marriage because it's unhappy and I don't know I don't know how that sits with me but that's at least how I how I read it. at the end of the day it's about her baby, her husband, and going back to the home and the wild thing inside of her is killed. What about you, Donna? I feel like it's been long enough since I've read the book that I don't remember how she ends up in that affair. Mm. But I feel like Donna and Vic's relationship is very stagnant and she is looking for something new, something different. Uh, and, you know, the movie doesn't give us any reason for it. They certainly don't show us any indication that she's getting any particular enjoyment out of it. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> when, when we, on the very few occasions that we see her with him, she doesn't look happy. No. So, yeah, I think she just must be bored and looking for something. I really found it interesting that Vic's solution was let's have another baby 
Yes, I wrote that down too. <laughs> the line is this marriage is definitely running out of conversation. Maybe we should talk about having another baby. And I almost flipped my laptop. Stereotypically, that's stereotypically, that's a woman's suggestion. Yeah. Stereotypically. Yeah. So I just thought that was an interesting thing for Vic to say. Do they need to break up? Yeah, I don't know. It was, guess when Donna was like, hey, I, I do want to preserve this family. That was when she decided I need to go talk to, to him and break this up. This morning, I recorded with Cabin uh, about the howling, which also stars Dee Wallace and her big square blonde husband. <laughs> <laughs> So, what also was recorded in the same woods, by the way. Um, oh, so it was and just for our listeners. The, the the blonde squarehead husband is the woman she has the affair with in Cujo. Yes, and we also discussed briefly this morning. By the way, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that he's not an attractive man. He's not an unattractive man. He's just like not the most attractive man ever. Yeah. And both movies portray him as if he is the most attractive man ever. And I'm just really perplexed by it. He's okay. <laughs> I wouldn't kick him out of bed. But Donna, you mentioned that you've read the book, right? Yes. Cass, have you read the book? A very long time ago, yeah. Okay, so I can't spoil the ending because you already know. So if you're listening and you've seen the movie, but you haven't read the book yet, this is your chance to, to pop off and read the book. Come back 800 pages later. Um <laughs> So the book has a completely different ending. Rather than survive, the little boy dies from, from heat stroke and dehydration. I'm curious if y'all liked the book or the movie better. I'm also curious, Cass, especially if that ending changes your reading of the film. Yeah, it would change a lot. I think if <sighs> staying together for the kids is kind of what I just generalized uh, Donna's entire marriage in the film to be. This is weird, like obligatory marriage in this film. But I think the choosing to stay with her husband and end an affair post like death of her child, I think it's just such a reckoning of an ending that whatever comes next is going to have to be new. And if they're choosing to be with each other through that, it's just going to be an entirely new phase of their life and a new like redefining of what their family is or could be. And I think that's actually what she's looking for. She's very stagnant and is looking for any kind of change. And that's like a very tragic change, but I think that would put her in a spot to make some like new definitions for her life. Uh, which ending do y'all prefer? It's a weird question. Do you like the bleak ending or the happy ending? Hollywood does this a lot where they flip endings on stuff to make happy endings. Here's a thing I very much like about the movie ending. And when I saw Vic running home, I was like, oh, after everything she's done, Vic's going to get there and save her. And I was ecstatic that Vic did not get there in time to save her. I was very happy that Donna was like, I have got to fix this. And Donna got out of the car. She faced that rabid dog. I wish she had shot him. I've, I've got in big letters, shoot him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then told you <laughs> but she got out of the car she faced the dog she she got the gun she she got her kid saved her kid and then she did indeed kill the dog 
all before her husband got there. So she was the hero. She did not need saving. And I loved that. I loved that. And if she had not been able to save her kid, it would not have been as good. I think it's an excellent point. I think Stephen King doesn't always write women characters in the best way, but I will say that he loves writing empowering mother characters. And I know the book doesn't necessarily do that, but I love that too. I love that she saves herself. I could see someone else reading the film just being like, she saves herself, she saves her child, and then she makes the choice to stay in this marriage. I think that is an also like more empowering read too. Yeah prefer the the book or the movie i don't know i think they're just so different it has been so long since i read the book that i don't remember i do remember the the disaster with the serial being a much bigger deal in the book like i read the book in college and i really loved the serial disaster plot line like it's in the movie kind of Mm-hmm. But it's not like a big part of the movie. I mean, all the beats are there, but it's not like uh, a story. I just really enjoyed that story in the book. And I don't know why, but I did. Yeah, no, it. Um, I feel like that storyline means something. And I may be giving Stevie too much credit <laughs> for, for meaning. I do feel like uh, Stephen King gets adapted all the time. And I feel like it's rarely the movie or TV shows as good as the book. I think it's just very hard to get him because I think what makes him a good writer is his wonderful voice. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very folksy. And I feel like it's hard to shoot a movie in a way that feels like that voice. I have noticed like almost all of his movies from the 80s and the 70s and the 90s have the the same soundtrack almost. Have you noticed that too? Yeah. They all kind of sound alike. And it, I don't know why. I don't know if it's the same composer or what, but I just feel like it's hard to capture his thing that he does very well. Do y'all think Cujo would exist without Jaws? I think it certainly could have. I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen King was like, one time I did see a rabbit dog like in a, in a window yeah. somewhere and then just like made up a story around it. But I'm sure Jaws was also probably in the back of his mind subconsciously, but I don't know. And I bet if he doesn't remember writing it, he probably doesn't remember what inspired him to write it. (laughs) That's a good point. So it's probably a bunch of things just coagulating in there. So I want to talk just a minute about some of the things I really appreciate about this movie. And one of them is some of the difficulties about dealing with a trained dog. Yeah, let's do it. When we were talking about the birds, that you can train a dog to attack on command. But what they're doing is they're playing with you. Mm. And so there's multiple times, most particularly right before and right after Cujo kills Gary, when that tail is just a wagon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. That big fluffy tail. That dog is so happy. I read the funniest set detail about this. They were so, they were, they couldn't get the dogs to not be happy that they tied fishing lines to the tails so they would stay down <laughs> because they kept just being like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, there were multiple times they had the tail tied to the <laughs> So I've got this dog. Her name is Bunny. And Bunny, I did a, a DNA test on because you can do that for dogs. And Bunny is 27% St. Bernard. But Bunny has short hair. And for the longest time, I could not figure out how Bunny's coat could be short 
and so soft. And this movie reminded me that some St. Bernard's have short hair. Oh, nice. So that's how my bunny has short, soft hair. Some animal movies do not give a shit. When they're like, yes, this black horse with no color on its face, this brown horse with a big white stripe down his face is absolutely the same horse. And you're supposed to go, all right. (laughs) But with Cujo, they just kept getting him dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. Mm. And I think they did an okay job disguising the fact that it was five different dogs. Not a great job. Because there were multiple times I was like, Cujo was a lot darker in the last shot. Yeah. (laughs) And okay job. A suspension of disbelievable level of disguising it. Do you think the the four dogs that didn't get to chase the rabbit were jealous of the dog that did? Like they must have been, right? I know maybe dogs don't know. Maybe they didn't tell them. I think for sure the other dog was like, I got to chase a rabbit. I got to chase a rabbit. (laughs) Right? Speaking Um, of which, my first note is, frankly, I'm worried about that bunny's neuro status. Oh. (laughs) Let the St. Bernard get. Oh my God. I wonder how many like undisclosed bunnies had like little baby heart attacks because like, oh God, not again. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I do want to say, by the way, just kind of as a random comment, as a veterinarian, I've actually been bitten multiple times by dogs. (laughs) Boy, have I been bitten. And one thing you may not realize is that it's not where the teeth penetrate the skin. That's not what hurts. I mean, that hurts. Don't get me wrong. That hurts. But dogs have extremely powerful jaws and they generate a tremendous amount of crush. And that's what actually causes the pain in a dog bite is the crush energy that goes into that bite. If you've ever been bitten by a dog, the actual puncture wounds are not what causes the pain it's the crush injury so where she's been bitten there on the arm what's causing the pain is the crushing i did want to say something about the camber's son yes i do want to ask you some questions about the dog training so i don't know if this is true or not so i want you to fact check for me um so they were saying that initially they were really scared of doing this film with a St. Bernard because St. Bernard's are supposedly really hard to train. And they got this guy named Carl Miller to be the dog trainer who would then go on to make 1992's Beethoven and all those beloved films. Is that true that St. Bernard's are hard to train? Is that just a rumor? St. Bernard's are really, really smart, um, but they're also really, really lazy. (laughs) St. Bernard's are like, man, I'm cool over here on the couch. Yeah, that does look like a really good treat. But man, do you see this couch? (laughs) A dog that's easy to train is a dog that's really motivated. So it's not for lack of smarts so much as it's a lack of motivation. You've got to give them something that they want more than their nap on the couch. And my other question was around the foam that they made. So I read that they used egg whites and sugar. To, so like that dog was probably just like, yes, like give me more foam. Is that actually, is the foaming really like what rabies does look like? I've never seen rabies in my life. The thing is, because again, their throat's not working, so they can't yeah. swallow. So yeah, there is some foaming, but it's going to be more drooling really okay. than foaming. Actually, the only actual case of rabies I've ever seen was a calf. This is going to be funny 
but veterinarian funny. So this case came in of a calf when I was still in school and everyone was really interested. Everyone thought this, this really cute little calf, I shouldn't have said that the story gets sad fast, Uh, but they thought we thought this calf had a broken leg. And so everyone on that rotation, all the students, all the interns, all the residents, all the, the veterinary staff, the attendings, the clinicians, everyone were just all over this calf because it was so cute. It was down. It wouldn't get up. And then they finally got it up and they realized, remember earlier when I mentioned there was the dumb form? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they finally got this calf up and everyone's like, there's no broken leg. And then it just kind of sank back down. And that's when they finally figured out that this calf didn't have a broken leg. It had rabies. And every single person who had touched that calf got to go have rabies prophylaxis. Oh my God. So here's the thing you may not know. Everybody in the veterinary profession has been vaccinated against rabies. So is rabies prophylaxis more shots or is it uh, oral medicine? It depends. If you have had a rabies vaccination, like I have, they'll actually draw and do what's called a rabies titer, where they go see, do you have enough rabies antibodies to be effective against a rabies infection. And if you do, they'll probably just booster your rabies vaccination and send you home. If you don't have enough or you've never been vaccinated for rabies, basically give you a whole bunch of shots, um, a whole bunch of stuff, rabies antibodies, uh, probably the rabies vaccine, basically a whole bunch of stuff to help your body gear up to fight it off. Because remember, you don't have rabies until it gets to your central nervous system. So if we can help you fight it off before it gets to your central nervous system, you never had rabies. My other fun tidbit about this film was the, anytime you saw the dog Cujo like slamming his head into a glass, that was too dangerous for any of the dogs to do. So they got a stunt man named Gary Morgan to be in a dog suit to do those scenes. I did not catch it, but I want to. I think you were going to tell us a fact about Billy Jacoby, who played Brett, right? Oh, yes. Yes. So Brett Camber, who is the mechanic's son, who is just this very flat, unemotional kid who only expresses any emotion when he's talking about his dog, uh, was very distracting to me through through the first third of the movie that he appears because every time he was on screen I was like man I know that kid and all I could assume was that maybe as an adult he was in something I knew him in and I finally stopped and looked him up there is this 80s movie that I absolutely love it's called just one of the guys it's not genuinely a good movie it's kind of a silly campy movie but I love it about this girl that goes and drag to another high school to prove sexism. And it's just, it's ridiculous. So and it's funny <laughs> and campy and I love it. And she's got this absolute horn dog of a younger brother whose best line in the whole movie, in my opinion, is, oh, I've had plenty of sex. Now I'd just like to try it with a partner. <laughs> is played by this same kid, Billy Jacoby or Jacoby, I'm not sure which. And he is so emotive and so out there and so full of energy that the reason I didn't recognize him is that Brett Camber is so flat. But once I finally figured that out, this whole you're distracting me so much was gone because I was like, oh my God, 
it's the same guy. How is it possibly the same guy? It made me so happy. All right. Well, that's, that's Cujo. Do you have any other thoughts about Cujo or Animal Tech? One final thought on Cujo. I think that Dee Wallace is incredible in this film. And I saw uh, our future guest, Tyler Dupuis, host a panel of, of Scream Queens. And I think what really amazed me was that it was like 20 or 30 and it's probably closer to 20, like between 15 and 20 Scream Queens. Uh, Gigi Saul Guerrero was there, uh, Barbara Crampton, uh, just people from all different eras of movies. And they just all loved Dee Wallace and they praised her just effusively. And it was really cool to see how much her contemporaries and how much the actresses who've learned from her or watch her, the performers who've learned from her, watching her performances, just admire her. We'll link to it in the show notes so everyone can watch it with me. Yes. <laughs> I had an animal attack question for y'all okay do y'all prefer movies like the birds and cujos where there's these like rich subtexts are you okay with like i would say like anaconda which i love does not have like a very rich subtext at all um do y'all need the subtext do y'all prefer the subtext i love anaconda and also as much as it scares me I am a sucker for the, a film that has a shark called Deep Blue Sea. I think I just like the team dynamics and it'd be a bit more fun or even Jurassic Park. Like, I love the idea of just being like, oh, what man. do we do with this big problem? Let's band together with all these personalities. So I think I do kind of prefer that. I think it really depends on my mood. Sometimes I just really want brainless fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and sometimes sometimes I, I, I want to think. What about you, Ryan? I feel like before I went to graduate school and college and writing, like I was very much in the camp of brainless fun. Like I watched Deep Blue Sea while doing a two hour safe driving course for a college (laughs) I taught at, um, which I I still don't understand why the fuck I had to do that. (laughs) Um, So Deep Blue Sea was like the perfect thing. So I could just like look up Thomas Jane's there, Samuel Jackson's getting surprised eaten by a shark. Mm -hmm. It's great. There's a time and place for both. And I like both a lot. So I guess it's a fun ending question. Why do you think we keep making movies with animal attacks in them? You know, the whole man versus nature thing has been, you know, one of our basic plots Mm -hmm. for forever. We have really always enjoyed exploring our relationship and our ability to survive against nature for as long as we've been writing stories. Mm. Betsy and I were walking our dog and we saw this like white blur maybe a hundred yards in front of us and I started squinting it was coming closer and I thought it was a, a loose husky at first and I was like mm. shit that's a coyote and here I am with my 30 pound dog and it was like a scary moment and I feel like if I was living in another part of the world that could be like a really dangerous animal what happened with the coyote is I very politely said go away coyote <laughs> it's really interesting I was thinking about it, like if I'm doing the dishes, I'm just doing like, what the fuck? Why do we have so many fucking plates? What are we doing this? And I'm just so, I'm swearing at everything. I see a coyote, not a single swear word, just very polite. Like, please, Mr. Coyote, please, please continue, move on. But I think like, because we still have those experiences, and I think, I imagine anyone who's done any camping probably has similar experiences. I think we still interact with animals. I think we're still, like we were talking about earlier, if it's just you, no weapon, and just an animal, you're, you're in trouble in some situations. I think people forget at the end of the day, we are also animals. We may have different faculties available to us and different tools and capacity for learning and memory and dreaming and all these other things. But at the end of the day, we are animals. And I think 
watching these like man versus nature films excites us because it a lot of the time forces humans to really think about how much they rely on tools. But yeah, I think it's just, we're interested in watching what happens if all these like societal constraints get stripped away and you're just left with like survival or not. And what do you use to get out of that? Cool. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Donna, for coming on. Thanks here. for coming on. Yeah. So check out Beyond the Cabin in the Woods and subscribe to Horror Hangover wherever you find your podcast. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Who is this? Do you like scary movies? Well, obviously, me and Ryan do. (laughs) Or you wouldn't be listening. And in March, we and Tyler Dupee of Dread Central and Wicked Horror fame are going to chat all things meta-horror, which includes, you guessed it, 1996 Scream, as well as The Final Girls. So stay tuned for more. And in the meantime, don't forget to shoot them in the heads. And also remember, it's always someone you know.